right, good morning. morning. Peace be with you. So I know we don't really do that here very much. I know Taylor doesn't say that often. I uh, when I was first at Sojourn Montrose, um, pastors say that every time they preach. So it's just ingrained in me. That's just what we, what I do when I, I come up here to preach. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Chase Woodhouse. I am the pastoral resident. He's an elder, then I'll take on the title of uh, executive pastor as long as I don't fail. And uh, so I just wanted to let you know a little bit about who I am starting out uh, because I think it ties in. Uh, I like to run. I know that makes me look like um, someone who's insane because running is um, it's very strange. You just start running and then you just decide to stop. And, but what I like to do is I actually like to run half marathons. Um, half marathons are, are quite fun for me. I'd love to run a full one day, but right now with the three little kids I have, a half will work because it's a lot of training. Um, but in half marathons, I've run about three, and when you run a half marathon, um, it's so fun at the beginning. You start out, there's a bunch of people, especially uh, here at the Houston Half Marathon and Full Marathon, there's a ton of people lined the sidewalks. And really, the entire 13 miles, there are people along the sidewalks cheering you on and stuff. And so it's, it's so fun. The first mile as I'm running always just flies by. Not because I'm actually running fast. Don't get me wrong. I'll get there in a minute. But it, it's just, you're so excited. You're filled with uh, joy. It's fun. It's wonderful. Yes, I'm saying running is fun. Um, it is fun. And then as you keep going on, suffering begins to, set, begins to set in. About mile five or so, I start to feel the pain a little bit. Start to say, okay, you know what, this is getting a little difficult. It's going to be hard. But then mile eight, the joy is sucked out. Around mile eight for me is when the suffering really starts to set in. And I have to work through, why am I doing this in the first place? Why am I running? What is my goal? Why am I choosing to do this? Why am I seeking to uh, finish this race? And, and what ends up happening for me is I'm not actually seeking to finish this race in order to win. I am perfectly average when it comes to running half marathons. Every single half marathon I've landed at the 50th percentile of my age. So I am perfectly average. So it's not like I'm running to actually win the race. Um, but for me, I run just to, to finish, to cross the, the, the goal line, essentially, if you would. And in this text this morning, Peter is going to and has, throughout really this entire book, discussed suffering. He's going to remind us that suffering is coming. He's going to help us uh, prepare for that suffering. Really what Peter's doing throughout this entire book, but, and I think especially in this chapter, he's giving us a theology of suffering. How are we to understand suffering when it comes? What are we to do with suffering? How are we to uh, understand what are the reasons why we might suffer? Um, the second question I think we're going to address is uh, what purpose does suffering have? Is there any purpose in it? And then lastly, we'll, we'll, we'll dive into the question of why does suffering exist in the first place? Why do we have evil in this world? Why is there pain? Why is there suffering? Why is there difficulty? And I think what we're going to see is um, Peter really addresses this quite well um, and encourages us as we continue on in this journey until Christ returns. And so first I want to talk about what are the reasons for suffering. Now, I also want to say this. Peter is talking, when he's talking about suffering in this text, he is talking about persecution. 
he is talking about believers who are going to be persecuted, physically persecuted for their faith. That is his main point. But with the rest of scripture, we can take everything that he is saying and apply it to other forms of suffering. The suffering of, of losing a child, the suffering of, of, of a spouse passing away, the suffering of losing a job, the suffering of having a uh, debilitating um, sickness, a disability, emotional pain, financial loss, on and on we could go. This, this theology of suffering really does apply to everything. So when I teach this, it will be a lot about persecution. And I do think that it actually absolutely applies to where we are as a church today in light of our culture. But I also want to make sure that you understand, and I'll get to it later, that this very much so applies to all of us who are undergoing any type of suffering. Peter's message for us this morning is one that can encourage us and strengthen us and help us to hold fast in the midst of suffering. But first let's look at, okay, what are the, what are the reasons that these believers were going to suffer? And, and the first is the Christian's morality, the truth, the way that the Christians were living caused the the uh, the Gentiles, as it were, the Greco-Roman uh, world, to persecute them. Look at verse 2 with me. So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past, that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunk, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Here in this, in this time period in the Greco-Roman world, there was worship of many gods, about the sacrifices of animals, but there were other uh, actions that, that people would do as sacrifices to these gods, and a lot of them aligned with what we just talked about, sensuality, orgies, lawless, uh, lawless idolatry. There was greed, there was debauchery. This was a world where sin reigned. And what happened to the Christians was not that they were better and therefore were being maligned, but rather they were actually pulled out from this culture and given a new identity. Help. They were pulled out by the grace of God, and they became new creatures. They began to follow no longer what the world said was good, no longer what uh, culture said was right, but had begun to follow the truth of Christ. And so because of this, they were being uh, persecuted. They were being maligned. And in verse 4, it's really, uh, I love the word that Peter uses here when he says, um, with respect to this, they are surprised. What does surprise mean? In, in the Greek, it actually is connected to the word xenos. So really what, what Peter's trying to say is, he's, they're surprised at these new aliens, these new creatures, this new person has come about, and they're surprised that they are no longer doing what they used to do, but are now living in a new way. And so because they are going against what the culture said was good, there was persecution. What the culture said was right, and why would they persecute them in the first place? They were persecuting the Christians because they viewed their lives and their morality as a threat to what was right in the culture, what would best serve the, the, the known world at that time. The Christian's morality, the Christian's truth, the Christian's way of life was seen as a threat. And so they were persecuted. 
But it's not just this reason that Peter says that they're being persecuted. Go with me to verse 13 through 16. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And then skip down to verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So the second reason that the Christians were suffering is because they claimed Christ. Now, to you and me, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But in this pagan Greco-Roman world, there was a worship of many gods. And there was the acceptance of the idea that even if there were other gods that were brought to them, they would be welcomed in. There was not like an exclusivity. All sorts of gods were welcome. All sorts of gods were worshipped. And, and really, if someone claimed to have the one true God and worship him and to abandon everyone else and began to spread that idea, the Greco-Roman world would have been afraid of incurring the wrath of their many gods. And so what Peter is saying is that basically they are suffering because they claim Christ. They claim the exclusivity of Christ. Christ alone is God. He died. He rose from the dead. He has ascended on high. He is the judge of the living and the dead. He is the creator of all things. And this was a threat to the Greco-Roman world. How could you claim that there is one God that created all things and that he alone is the way to have uh, life eternal? How could you claim this? All of this was a, a major pushback against the culture at large. And because the Christians lived in such a way where they claimed that the path of Christ was the truth and that Christ alone is God and Savior of all, they were persecuted. They were maligned. They were eventually killed. And I think if you are listening to this with, with ears that are attentive, you can see how this connects to our culture. For, for the past, I don't know, however many years, 200-something years, America has been a, a place where I feel like we've been running a half marathon and we've been through the first seven miles. We've been enjoying life here. We've had freedom of religion. There's been a, 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 genu a, a general acceptance of Christian morality. There's been a general acceptance of the idea that, that Jesus is God and that it's him alone that saves. There's been a general acceptance. We've been enjoying the first seven miles, and now we're, we're hitting mile eight. We're hitting the part where the rubber meets the road, where we're going to begin to potentially suffer. Why? Because we say that there is a truth, there is a morality, there is a standard of right and wrong that goes outside of our feelings, and that pushes back against the culture. People at large would like to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to do what feels right to me. We say there's, there's so much danger in that. And we don't, we don't condemn them. We say, hey, I understand that. I used to be that. But let me show you what Christ has, has done. And then we also claim an ex exclusive religion. It is Christ alone that saves. Now, Christ is willing to save all. Anyone can come to him, but it's through Christ alone that we are saved. Why was persecution coming? Because the Christians were pushing back against the culture. And I'm going to clarify what I mean by that here in a second. Because they weren't doing it in the way that I think 
we might be tempted to push back. But they were doing it by living a life that honored the Lord, living in quietness, speaking the truth boldly, being able to, as Peter says, defend what, what I can't remember what it says, defend their faith, essentially. The hope that, Rachel, Rachel was telling me, the hope that what? I can't hear either. Yeah, what she said. Hopefully you all heard her. And um, <laughs> um, they were able to defend their faith in a way that was honorable. As the tide turns in our culture and we are going to undergo persecution, I want to read verse 15. Because here's the thing. We might be really tempted to stand up and to punch back. And in fact, you might be taught to do that, to stand up and to punch back against the culture that punches us. So verse 15 is a warning, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. There is a suffering that is righteous. When we suffer for the sake of Christ, when we do not let go of the claims of Christ, but hold fast to them in love and in grace and in truth, that's a righteous suffering. And there's a suffering that comes when basically you're an idiot and you act horrible towards people and you treat them as less than you. And that suffering is just. There's a warning here to not suffer for doing evil, for being a meddler, for being a murderer or a thief. And so as the culture begins to rise up and push back against what the scripture says we don't need to fight back christ reigns forevermore he defends himself if you think that you need to defend him you need to step out of the way he is the creator you're the clay so we stand firm in our faith we continue pressing on we continue towards the goal and we let culture persecute us because, and we rejoice in it because we share in Christ's sufferings, which I'll, I'll get to that here in a minute. So why are we going to suffer? And again, Peter is talking about persecution here. Suffering goes beyond persecution. But here in this text, he's talking about we're going to suffer because we follow the ways of Christ and we hold fast to Christ. But the next question is, well, what does suffering even do? What's the purpose of suffering? Is suffering meaningless? Does it do anything for us, or is it just pain upon pain? And I think Peter's going to answer that here for us, though in ways that are, are a bit uh, confusing, to say the least. Um, Taylor talked about verse 6. I, I, do, I did study verse 6. I'm able to teach on verse 6. It wasn't really part of what I was going to talk about, so I will try to tie it in here if I remember. If I don't, come up and ask me. I'm happy to talk about verse 6. Um, but I want to talk about verse 1 um, first. What does suffering do within us? Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Okay. Does this mean that when we suffer, we're going to be perfect after that? The rest of the scriptures would tell us, no, absolutely not. Uh, I have suffered. I've not suffered persecution. I have suffered, and my family can absolutely tell you that I am a sinner, that I have not ceased from sin in any shape or form. So what does Peter mean when he says, 
that when we suffer in the flesh, we have also ceased from sin. We'll look to verse 2. He explains it. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Suffering, essentially, as I've studied this text, what I've found is that suffering essentially proves that you are in Christ. That you have died to the flesh. You have ceased from sin. You have died to living in a certain way and have instead, you've been buried with Christ and raised to walk with him in newness of life. Karen Jobes, uh, the commentator that Taylor and I use all the time for this, uh, for this book, says this, to those who suffer unjustly because of their faith in Christ, excuse me, those who suffer unjustly because of their faith in Christ have demonstrated that they are willing to be through with or done with sin by choosing obedience, even if it means suffering. Suffering proves that we have truly let, suffering for Christ, suffering in Christ, proves that we have let go of our past, of our sinful life, and have clung to Christ. Clung, is that a word? Cling, clung? Of course it's a word. All right. We have let go of who we once were, and we have clung to Christ. Tom Triner in the ESV Study Bible, if you happen to have it, it's right there at the bottom. He says this, uh, when believers are willing to suffer, the nerve center of sin is severed from their lives. When we are willing to suffer, there's a real letting go of this past life and of who we once were, and, and it kills it, and it causes us to push more towards Christ. So what does suffering produce in us? It produces, a, 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 it's a proof that we are in him, and it helps us let go all the more of this sinful past life that we once lived. But Peter's going to kind of elaborate on that point at the end of the chapter. Man, this is a whole chapter, so we're jumping back and forth. Um, he says this, yet if anyone, this is verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? I'll read verse 18 because it's really good. And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, Peter, when he says the judgment of God begins on the household of God, he does mean the judgment. The eschatological, the end of times judgment has begun. The Greek is very clear. He's saying judgment has begun, and it's begun on the household of God. Now, when you and I think of judgment, rightly so, because often in Scripture this is what it means. We think of the judgment day of God where the condemnation of, um, of, of our, uh, from the Lord for our sins is given to us. The wrath of God is poured out. We understand that. But here in this, Peter's not talking about that. Because, one, it goes against the rest of Scripture. Those who are in Christ do not experience condemnation. For their sins. But really, what, what Peter means is, is this. Um, the, the, ver, or the, the Greek word here is, uh, I can't say it, tekrima. And it can also refer to the action of a judge with no assumed penalty or punishment in view. So really what he's saying is the household of God is experiencing the judgment of God, not as a sense that they are condemned, but rather Think of the sheep and the goats, as Jesus talks about, I believe it's in Matthew 25. There's a separation happening. The true sheep are being separated from the goats. Those who are in Christ, who have been saved by, by grace alone, through faith alone, are beginning to be separated 
from the goat's suffering, excuse me, suffering really is a judgment that begins to help us see who really is in Christ and who is not. But Peter is also tying us back to a prophecy in Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, I want to read it to you. Um, We're actually going to teach on this uh, for Advent. Um, So it's a little bit of a uh, uh, spoiler alert. By the way, Merry Christmas. I finally get to say it. I love saying Merry Christmas. I'm a big Christmas person, so I finally get to say it. All right. Um, But who can endure the day of his coming, him being the Messiah? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in former years. Essentially, what what Peter's tying this back to is there's the household of God begins to experience this judgment. And what is this judgment? It's a refiner's fire. The judgment in the household of God doesn't lead us to condemnation, though it should. We all stand condemned. We are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. But it doesn't because of Christ and Christ alone. So what judgment does for us now, what suffering does for us now, is it refines us. It burns off the dross. It causes us to leave behind our life of sin and cling all the more to Christ. This is the beauty of suffering. And yes, I did say that. The beauty of suffering is that it is not meaningless. It produces in us a, a, a pushing away from sin, a running away from our past, and it gives us more and more of Christ. As we endure well, as we endure in Christ, we come, can fall more and more in love with him. We can leave behind the sin that so easily entangles and enslaves, all because of this suffering that produces in us through the power of the Holy Spirit, a love of Christ. Suffering is not meaningless. Suffering produces holiness in us if we endure by the power of the Spirit. And this is not a work of of what we do. All we do is hold fast to Christ and cling to him, and it's through his Spirit that we become more and more like him. So suffering is not meaningless. Suffering proves that we are in Christ, which is a great assurance especially on our deathbed. And suffering sanctifies us. But then we have to ask the question, why is there evil and suffering in this world in the first place? Why did God allow brokenness? Now, part of the answer is we were not created sinful. We were not created rebellious, but we fell. And when we fell, the cosmos fractured. Everything fractured, suffering and death entered into the world. That is clear. But the question still remains, well, why in the first place? Why I allow that as a possibility? On and on and on we could go. And we could spend a whole sermon series on this. Because it's a great question. It's not a bad question to ask. But I can't answer it. I can't answer why. But I can show you who. Read verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Why is there suffering? I don't know. 
but Christ suffered. Do you understand what I'm saying? Christ descended. He could have stayed on his throne forevermore. He could have stayed there and watched us suffer. And in fact, most of our culture thinks that's what he does. But God did not do that. He did not just look and look down on us and say, well, you guys screwed up. Good luck. Figure it out. No, he condescended. He came down. He was born. And he wasn't born in luxury. He wasn't born as a king, as a conquering king, able to come and just wipe out those who are, who are causing problems. No, he was born as a poor boy. His parents were incredibly poor. And then he had to flee to Egypt. He was a refugee. He lived in Egypt for a time until it was safe for him to come back. And then he was raised here on this earth as a carpenter. And then when he started his ministry, he was reviled. He was deemed a heretic. He was deemed a rebel. And then, and then he suffered death. A humiliating, excruciating death. And the worst was that Christ suffered by taking your sin, those who are in Christ, and my sin, and bearing their weight. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Sorry, it's a deaf word. And on that cross, the wrath of God was poured out upon him. I don't know why they're suffering, but I know that God suffered. I know that God entered into the suffering and experienced more than, for those who are in Christ, he experienced more suffering than you and I ever, ever will. He experienced hell. Those who are in Christ, those who have come to him and asked him to save, they will not experience hell. He did. I can't answer why, but I can boldly and clearly proclaim to you that Christ suffered. He is the true sympathetic high priest. He is the one who experienced to understand your suffering because he experienced it. And he experienced more. Dorothy Sayers said this. For whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. Side note, we do know God made us perfect we were not fallen when he created us. I don't think that's what she's saying, but continue on. He had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing. This is on the front of your bulletin. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole human experience from the trivial irritations of family life. You may have experienced that this week. And the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worth while. I don't know why we suffer. I don't know why suffering exists, but I know that God suffered, and he suffered to purchase you and I. That, that when, you, when you look upon Christ and you see that he died on the cross, and then three days later, he rose from the dead. He literally just said, you know what, I don't want to be dead anymore, and he came out, and he 
is living forevermore. When you look upon Christ, death is no longer an enemy. He's, he's, he's bad. Don't get me wrong. But when you and I die, death is an usher that brings us to the arms of Christ. Death has power, but now when we die, we get to go be with Christ. Suffering is no longer meaningless. It produces in us a holiness. It causes us to leave behind that, that which kills us, that which enslaves us, and causes us to run to Christ. He has taken our enemies, and he has made them his servants. We will experience death. We will experience suffering. It will be very hard and very difficult. But Christ suffered so that you might be resurrected. You might live with him forevermore. We might be made more and more into his image. And to be image bearers that go out into this Galleria community and proclaim his goodness. That he has come and he has died and he has risen. Why do we suffer? Wish I could say. But Christ suffered. And I want to say this too. How do we, I mean, this is, this is really, I think for me, this is very helpful. When I was first reminded that Christ suffered, even, you know, trying to understand the problem of evil and suffering, when I was first reminded that, hey, Christ entered the game, that was balm for my soul. But I also, it's a great theology, but what else, what else does Peter offer us as encouragement in this life as we will suffer? Look at verse um, 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You see, he's not just giving you a theology to understand suffering. There is a promise that when you suffer, the spirit of God will come and rest upon you. That's messianic language. The Messiah was going to have the spirit come and rest upon him. Now, what the Messiah has received is now ours for those who are in Christ. You receive this, the blessings of Jesus. And what does this mean practically when the Spirit comes to rest upon you? The best way I can explain it is to share my own story. I don't know how many of you know my deaf story. Uh, I am deaf. I'm legally deaf. I'm actually, if I take these off, I'm pretty much completely deaf. Um, when I was nine, I started losing my hearing. It was very slight, small, not a big deal. Didn't care, right? I just wanted to go like, outside and play. When I was 12, um, it got worse. Went for a regular checkup, and my hearing was kind of plummeted. And that was when I had to start wearing hearing aids, which I never did. Uh, it was when I had to start sitting in the front of the class to hear, which I never did. And um, my life really started to change. And it was in that moment, where, and I had been a believer for a while, but it was in that moment where the rubber met the road, and I said, hey, God, you say you love me. What are you doing? If you love me, how can you allow me to go through this pain and this suffering? And for a year, I asked God to heal me. I asked him to come and to do what I've seen him do in the scriptures. And I believed that he very well could. And the next year, I went to another hearing test. And my hearing had basically stayed the same and gotten a little bit worse. Everything in that moment, every, as I look back on that, I should have left the faith. I should have shaken my fist to the Lord and said, do you really love me? Are you kidding me right now? But here's where the spirit of glory and of God rested upon me. As the audiologist, she's over there, she's telling me the, 
you know, results. He gets up, she leaves. There was a flood of peace that surpasses all understanding that erupted within me. And it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to be healed. It wasn't, it, all it, it wasn't even a physical hug, but it was like the Lord had come and given me a hug. And all I heard God say was, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. But what the Spirit of God did inside of me in that moment got me through and continues to get me through the reality that my hearing kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse to the point where when Selah was like, I don't know, a year and a half, Rachel was said, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't really even understand her. She was learning to talk, and I couldn't understand her, and Rachel and I talked, and it was time to go explore cochlear implants. And so thanks be to God, I can hear pretty much like a normal person now. But there was a real loss. I don't hear with normal ears anymore. My hearing is different. And in that moment of deep suffering, the Spirit of God came and rested. And, and that's the encouragement I want to offer to you this morning. If you are undergoing suffering, as you endure, the Spirit will come and he will bring comfort. He will bring peace. He will show you the path forward. He will remind you of the words of Christ. He will remind you of what Christ has done for you. He will remind you that this is not the end, that there is a hope of all suffering. Every tear that you have cried will be wiped away by Jesus. He will come and he will individually remove every moment of sorrow you have ever experienced. He will come and he will remove it because he died, because he suffered. The encouragement here is, one, we have the Spirit who gets us home. It's by His power alone that we even endure suffering. But also, and the last point that I want to make today, basically verses 7 through 11 are an encouragement to be the body of Christ for those who are suffering. Let me start off by saying this. Here in the United States, we have a really hard time letting people in when we're suffering. What foolishness. And I say that about myself, too. What foolishness. Because if we are the body of Christ, and if we live as Christ calls us to live, which we will live imperfectly, but as we grow into this, we need one another. Peter's making that very clear here. We need one another. Here's what he says. The end of all things is at hand. Jesus is coming back, essentially. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. To me, that's a, a real summary of what I've been talking about. Have Understand what suffering does, what God has done for us, and hold fast in that and continue on in prayer. Be sober-minded. Be self-controlled. And above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. I, I love that Peter added that last part at the end there. Because he might challenge us to love one another, but he's also letting us know that, that when we love, there's going to be people that sin against you, and you're going to have to love them anyways. You're going to have to seek reconciliation, all that. I understand all that, but love covers a multitude of sins. He's calling us to love even when it hurts. To be hospitable with one another without grumbling. It's, hospitality is costly. To be truly hospitable to someone who is suffering is incredibly 
Um, what was it? Uh, costly. So we do it without grumbling. And as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God, and whoever serves as one who serves with the strength that God supplies. Okay, what Peter's saying there, to summarize, he's summarizing Paul's long uh, letter, basically, about the spiritual gifts. Peter's just making a really short version of that and saying, all the spiritual gifts of God are summarized in these two statements here at the end. Um, even one who speaks and one who serves are all summarized. Basically, use the spiritual gifts to encourage the body. Peter's encouraging those who are in Christ to love one another, to care for one another, to serve one another. Here in this church, we are to do that. I use this quote often, but Aristides, as he's writing to the Caesars, right? He sees, he sees these Christians, and Caesar's like, go, figure out why they are who they are. And I don't have the quote in front of me, but essentially what he says is they love them, they love people well, they fast when someone else is hungry and invite them into their house for two to three days, they care for one another deeply, and truly they are new people and something divine is in the midst of them. This is what this body is supposed to be place where people who are suffering can come and be met with love and grace and truth. And so, friends, as we suffer, and we will suffer, we will suffer persecution. That's likely coming. Brace yourself. Arm yourself. Understand that that's going to happen. Don't fight back. And when we suffer, whether it's persecution, whether it's disease, whether it's loss of family, whether it's loss of job, whatever it might be, when you suffer, Know that Christ is using it for your good and his glory. And remember that Christ has suffered. He has suffered. And let's be the body for one another. Let's be a place where we, where when we suffer, we come and say, you know what, I, I, I need some help. And then let's meet with love and humility, hospitality, grace, truth. And let's walk together. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Oh, Lord, thank you so much that Christ came and suffered for us. Lord, that you didn't just sit on your throne and laugh at us or scoff at us or just leave us on our own. Lord, that's what so many people believe about you, that you have just left us on our own. But, Lord, Advent... Advent proves that that is absolutely incorrect. You came down, and you didn't come down to conquer. You came to suffer. And through your suffering, you conquered. Lord, help us to remember that suffering is coming. Lord, help us to be prepared for that. Lord, I know I'm not prepared for that. Every time one little thing happens, I freak out. I am not ready for suffering. Lord, help me to be ready for suffering. Lord, help me to remember that you are making us into a greater image of your son and causing us to fall more and more in love with him. Father, I pray that when we suffer, that we would find a home here. We would find a people that love us, that care for us, that help us. Father, I pray for those in here who are suffering right now. Spirit of Christ, I ask that you come and just rest 
on the mortar. Bring your peace, bring your grace. Lord, we need you. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things.